0: Holy Spirit, would you help us to see Jesus today, the crucified God, given for us. Renew our faith, we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 1 through 30. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe, and they went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man! Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabathana. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit.
1: Good morning. My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright. I want to w- welcome you, as Allison did at the beginning of the service, especially if you're here for the first time. This morning, we are going to consider the meaning of what we have sung. Sometimes we either know a song well, or we're just learning it, and we sing it because the words are there and everyone else is singing it. But today. I want us to dive into the deeper meaning of the cross. What are some of these phrases that we sing sometimes pretty thoughtlessly in the songs and hymns on Good Friday morning? So we're going to look at the cross as we work our way through this passage in three parts. First of all, we'll consider its persuasive power. Second, its limitless love. And finally, its sufficient sacrifice. We started with Pilate. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them tell us about Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. But John has more to say about Pilate than any other gospel. Only King Herod and Pilate had the right of capital punishment given to them by Rome. But Herod won't condemn Christ to death, and Pilate is evasive. Pilate was a politician who knew how to hedge his bets. And we need to look back at John 18 if we're going to understand where Pilate is coming from. First of all, he asked Jesus, are you king of the Jews? So he's not really interested in the spiritual possibilities that Jesus holds out. He's not interested in Jesus potentially as the true Messiah. What he's asking what he's getting at is he wants to know if Jesus is political, if Jesus is a threat. And Jesus doesn't actually answer his question. He says, is that your idea? Or did others talk to you about me? He confronts Pilate. He invites Pilate to become more personal with him. And Jesus is always doing that with us, right? Then Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were... My servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. My kingdom is from another place, he says. So here Jesus is affirming that he is a king, he has a kingdom. And later, after repeating for a third time that Jesus is innocent, Pilate gets frustrated with Jesus, who isn't playing the game. He says, Jesus, don't you realize I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus cuts to the chase immediately at that point. He says, with authority, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And so we see that there's more going on here than meets the eye. This, in reality, is a confrontation of powers. And Jesus makes it clear where the real power comes from. But it's a different power. It's not the kind of power we tend to pursue. It's a power that persuades. I was driving to Fergus the other day for a meeting, and I, I just was coming up the hill into Fergus, some of you know it, when I spotted a police car coming towards me. Suddenly the lights went on, and my heart stopped. You know that moment, some of you. Why do we panic in that instant? Well, partly because we feel guilt. But also because we can't hide, right? We have nowhere to escape to in that moment. So I thought to myself, well, they got me. And sure enough, the police car did a U-turn right behind me. I pulled over, and she sped off ahead. Praise the Lord, I said... <laughs> Somehow, I had forgotten that a white Mercedes SUV was doing about 130 and overtook me about a minute earlier. Most of us would love to have power like that police officer had. The power to enforce whatever law, whatever will we might want to enforce. The power to get our way in a sense. I'm going to call this kind of power the power that prevails. And in its most obvious form, you find it in the military. Power that prevails on the battlefield. Power that seizes control and forces obedience through coercion. And the church was quick to try to grab this kind of power when it had the chance. And so we identify that period in Christian history as Christendom is the word we use for it. Popes preached sermons that launched crusades that sent thousands to their death. Christian leaders ruled kingdoms and commanded armies. National churches collected taxes and still do today in places like Germany and Sweden. And all of that failed. Today, Europe is the one continent where Christian faith is weakest. Some of you may have seen the images of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris burning this past week. It's ironic that so many people rush to give money to the church, to the reconstruction of Notre Dame, out of a sense of nostalgia for a Europe that no longer exists. A friend of mine posted something on Facebook reflecting on Jesus in the temple, where he is angry with all the trade and commerce going on in God's house. And then he says in John 2, he says, I will tear down this temple. And they said, how can you tear down this temple? We've been building this temple, it's huge, look at it. And he says, the temple is my body. Jesus invites us to focus on him before we focus on cathedrals, buildings, and money. And of course, Christian faith didn't start with cathedrals. Jesus makes it clear that in his kingdom, his kind of power should not be worldly. It should never be power that seeks to prevail through force. Instead, Jesus lays down his power in order to persuade us and to persuade all people that true power is the power to serve. And it was the service and hospitality of the early church that actually attracted people, that enabled the church to grow. Widows and orphans were cared for, women's rights defended, The Christian view of sex, for one thing, demanded faithfulness in marriage. And so women flocked to the church. Families flourished. The Christian view of money encouraged people to share their resources with the poor, where previously they had no reason to do so. And so the rich were moved to generosity by the cross of Jesus Christ. And people all over the world began to be persuaded to put their faith in him. God doesn't prevail upon us. He does not use force. He invites us to change our hearts and our minds using a different kind of power, one that lays down its life for us. At the cross, Jesus also offers us a limitless love. We see how he suffers and dies an extraordinary death, We see how far Jesus is willing to go most clearly in Mark and Matthew's accounts of the crucifixion, where Jesus is recorded as crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is a line from a psalm, because Jesus bled scripture as well as bleeding in other ways. As Jesus takes on the sins of the world, God turns away from him. As Jesus takes on God's judgment, as he drinks the cup that he begged his father to take away from him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is cut off from the source of all light and life and goodness. In our sin, we all of us hide from God. We try to get away from God. We want our own way when it comes down to it. And as we do that, whether we admit it or not, We're actually asking God to leave us alone. We're saying, go away, God. But God simply loves us too much to do that, so he sent Jesus. And Jesus went there so that we don't have to. Jesus went beyond the limits of any kind of ordinary love. He chose to be abandoned so that we could be found again. Psalm 23 is the cry of a desperate man a man who's been forsaken by God, a man who is about to be put to death by execution. Most of all, it points to Jesus, and that is why Jesus uses its words here, as he is about to die. And in John's Gospel, in the passage we read this morning, we find Psalm 22 quoted again. It says, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now that was the right of the executioner in those times. And we don't usually stop to consider the meaning of those words. Jesus was naked when he was crucified. Of course, the pain of being crucified would have been excruciating, would have been terrible. But its humiliation was even more central to its evil purpose. It was designed to rob its victims of their dignity, of their humanity. At the cross, Jesus was stripped naked and covered with shame. So that we could be clothed. And so that we don't have to be ashamed. After the soldiers divide up the clothes of Jesus, we see another side of this love that has no limits. This love that will go the distance for us. Not only does Jesus endure the hell of being forsaken and abandoned by his Father, but even as he's suffering, he sets a new tone for us as to how we can love Without limits. From the cross, he looks down on his mother and he points to John, the disciple with whom he had a special relationship. He points Mary to John and he says, Here is your son, except John wasn't her son. And then he points John to Mary and he says, Here is your mother, except Mary wasn't John's mother. Something incredible is happening here as it starts to sink in for us. In the ancient world, nothing was more important than family. Family was security. Family provided meaning and a future. Family was everything. Love had clear limits at that time and for us too. It was focused on your family, on your tribe, your people. Those were the ones you limited yourself to, your loyalty, Your care. But at this moment, when we would expect Jesus to be completely caught up in the pain of the cross, instead he commissions his church. He sends his followers out to love without limits. What he's doing is redefining family for us. He says, You, as my disciples, are a new family, and he commands us to love each other as family. Even as his own body is being broken, Jesus calls us to become the body of Christ. The cross leads us to love beyond what might be expected. To go beyond the ways our world labels us and divides us based on where we were born, what family we come from, our education, our wealth, our ethnicity. We are all of us brothers and sisters now. Grandparents, parents, And children together in God's family. Now this is really hard for us. I'm not pretending otherwise. Because we are so individualistic that we refuse to risk any loss of freedom. But let's notice that it is the final request that Jesus makes before he dies. He gives us a new family. We are called to love without limits. Now, one thing about your family is you don't get to choose them, right? If you had the option, you might not really have chosen them all. Your brother or your sister may actually be the last person in the world you'd want to have as a friend. They may be quite different from you and not someone to whom you'd be naturally drawn. Instead, what do we value? We value authenticity in relationships. We use this word a lot. And our culture tells you to be true to yourself above anything else. And Pilate echoes this sentiment. He asks, what is truth? He's cynical about truth. It's as if he's saying, truth is one thing today, something else tomorrow. So reinvent yourself. Choose to be whoever you want to be. But family, the kind of family to which God calls us, is not a choice. It's a commitment. And through that commitment the Christian family becomes the most authentic reality in our lives and in the world. So Jesus is inviting us to let him get close here. And he's inviting us to make it practical, to step in to that community more and more. What does that look like for you today? It may be that... You could consider coming out for Courtright Connect, which is happening a week from tomorrow morning, meeting some new people. We'll be talking about the church. How are we becoming more and more faithful, we trust, to this church that God calls us to be part of? Or it might be recognizing that a relationship you're already in is a Christian family development in your life, that you are a parent or a grandparent to a son or a daughter to whom you are not related by blood, and to start to think in those terms. Or if you're younger, it may be that you are being called into some leadership role. If you're here this morning in high school, or if you're a young adult, what's holding you back from leading? And if it's anything to do with the church, come and talk to me, because we don't want there to be any obstacles like that. On this long weekend, when many of us will spend time with our families, how are you responding to the cross? How are you caring for the whole family of God? How could you pick up the phone? How could you take half an hour and make that more real for yourself and someone else? When Jesus dies on the cross... He says simply, it is finished. What does that mean? We sang it a couple of times. Well, at one level, it's obvious, right? He's referring to his earthly life. He was about to die. But there's much more here. Jesus isn't only setting us an example. Rather, most importantly for us and for our eternal destiny, He is the sacrifice that is sufficient. He embodies it through his death and resurrection. Jesus is enough. And so we come back to the nakedness of Christ on the cross. He was stripped so that we could be clothed. Think back to Genesis with me. When God first created humans, they were naked and they were not ashamed, right? They were in this perfect harmony. But then we chose power, we chose knowledge, And we started to hide from God. And we're still hiding. That is our shame. You don't hear a lot about shame today. People tell you 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 shouldn't be feeling guilty, there's nothing to be ashamed of. But everyone feels it. There's a part of each one of us that we will not reveal to anyone else because we're afraid of how they would respond. It's the part of our inner being that we know would drive people away if they could see it. So we hide it. It's the part that's discontent, that's selfish, that's malicious, jealous, vindictive, angry. And it's ugly. So we conceal it most of the time. And yet we know that there's something wrong with us. Jesus goes to the cross to put that right. He pours himself out to fill up our emptiness. He takes all of our fear and insecurity and offers us his peace. He gives us a new identity that finds its place in him and in his people. He takes our shame so that we can be restored to the harmony that he created us to enjoy with one another and in relationship to him. Now, as we sing these songs about sacrifice and about the cross or later in the days to come maybe you will find yourself asking why is a sacrifice needed God is God after all right my daughter Chloe every year as Good Friday approaches she says to me I'm not calling it Good Friday she calls it the worst Friday Why couldn't God just have dispensed with so-called Good Friday? Can't God just forgive people? Isn't God all-powerful? Well, the answer to that question is no. God cannot simply forgive people. Think about this with me in your relationships in your life, right? I'm willing to bet that in the last 24 hours, you thought of someone who has hurt you. If you're like me, your mind drifts to those people on an almost daily basis. The reason for that is that if someone hurts you, you can't just shrug it off. When someone hurts you, especially if they hurt you deeply, there's always a debt. It's between you and that person. And you can do one of two things. When it comes to people who have hurt you. You can make them pay for it. You can attack them. You can curse them in your mind and in your heart. You can find ways to get back at them. But if you do that. You're going to suffer yourself. Your heart will grow hard. The other thing you can do is forgive them. And there's nothing harder. That means that when you want to complain about someone, you don't. When you want to curse them, you don't. When you have a chance to gossip about them, to put them down, you don't. Now, all of a sudden, you're the one who's paying off that debt. There's still a cost. Because there's no such thing as a serious wrong that can be forgiven without sacrifice, without payment. Someone has to pay. I love the way the Apostle Paul sums this up in Colossians 2. He says, God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In Jesus, we have a God who changes everything. Jesus is a God who was so true and so just that he had to die. He couldn't just forgive us without a price being paid, without taking the consequences for our sin. But in Jesus, we also have a God who was so loving and so merciful that he was willing to die for us in our place. And so we receive the love of God as we come to rest in this sufficient sacrifice that he made at the cross. He offers it to us as a gift. He doesn't force us to obey him. Jesus finished his work of salvation so that you and I could receive freedom in Christ. We don't need to earn it ourselves. He fulfilled what we never could have. He took our sin on himself and gave us his very life in return. Because of what Jesus finished, we ourselves are never finished. We have hope for this life and for the next, and we know that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. One day, what God began in you and in me and all of us will be finished and fulfilled. Until then, we live in the hope that comes to us through his sacrifice, his blood that was shed, his victory over sin and death. And we remember that most of all on Good Friday. As you remember that, I want to encourage you to find some time, if you haven't already done this, over the next two days to spend in the prayer room that some really dedicated people have put together. Can you see that door behind the center section where Allison and Steve and Dennis are sitting? That leads into the prayer room. If you haven't heard about it, uh, I would invite you to discover it, even for half an hour. Surely you can find 30 minutes today or tomorrow or up till our first Easter Sunday morning service at 9 a.m. I don't know about you, but when I'm at home, I get distracted. There's a lot going on. My kids are often throwing fruit and vegetables around the house. That's how it goes with pastor's kids, you know. It really helps to get away from all those distractions, from the chaos that our homes sometimes represent. So consider coming and spending some time in prayer. Maybe you struggle to pray. You've stopped praying. Come and be silent. Come and use what's been put together in that room to find peace to renew your hope in God. I invite you to do that. God bless you.